So I urge the Russian people and the Russian soldiers in Ukraine to understand the propaganda and the disinformation that you're being told. I ask you to help me spread the truth. Let your fellow Russians know the human catastrophe that is happening in Ukraine. And to President Putin, I say, you started this war. You are leading this war. You can stop this war. Well, From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI, Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka. In Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KEPW in Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN. Palinville, New York, WLPP, Rochester, New York, WRFC, New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and coast-to-coast and around the globe, streaming on the Internet. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Burden Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com. But once again, you got me. I'm Nicole Sandler. I host the Nicole Sandler Show based at NicoleSandler.com. And boy, do I have a show for you today. And I'm rushing because I want to get right to it. We're going to end with my own personal quest, my own journey to connect with one person in Ukraine. Because I don't know about you, but the weight of thinking about 40 million plus people being bombed into oblivion is too much for me to handle. For me, it's easier if I can focus on one person and her family and their safety. And that's what I did. So I will introduce you to my friend, Tanya, in the second part of the show. But we're going to start today with one of my favorite guests, frankly. Ellie Mistal is the justice correspondent for The Nation magazine, and he's got a new book out. It's called Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. We spoke about a week and a half ago, and it was right after he appeared on The View and provoked quite the controversy because of how he referred to the Constitution. So we'll pick up right there. So... You read the book, you open it up, and on the very first page, it says the Constitution is trash. Um, You basically say it. So when you go on The View and you say the Constitution is trash, why were they surprised? Really? The the very first line of my book is the Constitution is not good. Right. The very last line of the book is I'm I'm here to tell you the Constitution is trash. Republicans are the ones who say it always has to stay that way. Right. So like the, the frame of the book is that the const- what I am retorting to in the title of the book is the white slaver and colonist constitution that we are saddled with. I, I'm, uh, I'm not ashamed of, of talking about that, right, Nicole? And it's, right. It's, it's been weird to me to get some of the, the reaction because I kind of want to be like, have you, has anybody actually read this thing? Like, just the, the veneration that people have for this parchment 
it's 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 religious, right? As opposed to something rational and logical and whatever, right? Exactly. You can you you can like there there are lots of ideas in the Constitution that I like. You know, I, there 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 are lots of concepts there that I think are useful. The problem is is that the ideas and concepts in the Constitution have never been applied to everybody who's living here equally, like not even for a day. Right. We have just just to see how it feels like right? we haven't even had a taco Tuesday where, <laughs> where all the ideas in this document have been applied to everybody. And because the Constitution doesn't require that all of its ideas or ideals are lived up to, um, I, I think it's a pretty weak document overall. Well, exactly. And, and it makes a lot of sense. And if if, you know, maybe they need some new producers over at The View because it seemed like they didn't even know what the premise of the book was. Like, it, oh, why were they no, shocked? I, I'll, I'll, look, I thought the ladies of the view were great. Uh, um, Sunny had read the book, and we we had a really okay. Good she, about yes, it. she, she, um, she was back there to, backstage. And I, I didn't think that the look. I, I think that the the, the hosts on the view were a little bit surprised that like I would be so bold. <laughs> Um, on television, because I do think that a lot of people, even a lot of people who agree with me, um, generally find nicer ways to say that um, under the bright light. So I think they were a little bit surprised that I said it, but I didn't feel like they were mean or I, I was really thankful um, for the opportunity to go on and talk with them. I thought they were great and I had a good time. I had a good time talking to the audience. It's really just been the Twitter reaction that's been like, really, guys, really um, conservative media. And that's that's not entirely surprising as well. Like the conservative media, which doesn't have the I want to say intellectual capacity, the 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 gravitas to engage with my arguments are instead coming at me for, you know, slogans or the way that I look or whatever. That's not in my career. That has not been all that surprising. Um, it's it's a little bit disappointing, but I'm not. Yeah, I can't say that I'm surprised by it. Right. But if they have just looked at the book cover, <laughs> see what you look like. So anyway, you're making a really good point. That's like, but can I just say, Nicole, yes. well, that's the yes. that's again the other point. Like, so they're criticizing me for something I said on The View. That's literally the first line of my book. Right. And then they're criticizing me for how I look when my face is on, <laughs> on my the cover book. of the book. <laughs> These people not get <laughs> I, kind of, I know what I look like. I kind of thought this through and like, I'm not embarrassed about the points that I have to make or my physical piece. Right. Well, you know, welcome to the club because when, the, when they swarm, when I get attacked by the crazies on Twitter, nine times out of 10, they come at me about my appearance. I'm fat. Yep. I'm old. I'm ugly. Really? That's what you got? Go away. You know, yeah. that's ridiculous. Bring an argument. But if you want to talk about my appearance, have you looked in a mirror lately? I promise you, I, I you know, I haven't seen you, but chances are you don't look a whole lot better. Bring right. some substance, man. And it's like, it, it's not like I don't give them stuff to talk about. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like I, I have viewpoints that one reasonable people might disagree. Mm -hmm. right? like we, we could have a conversation on the substance if they were able to kind of intellectually lock in and engage at that level. They're not. And so that's why we get this, uh, this, this particular pushback again, like it, it's, it's a, it's, it's not something that I didn't anticipate even when I was writing it. Cause I, cause I knew that a lot of conservatives haven't kind of thought about this document the way that I have, but I didn't write it for them. Right. And that's the other thing. Right. It's not like I'm trying to 
change the conservative mind. I'm not trying to change the mind of people who can't even accept that maybe a document written by slavers isn't the best thing that we have, you know, since life spread, right? Right. Um, the reason why I wrote it is to make some of these concepts way more accessible um, to people who haven't been to law school, who don't have legal training. Um, because frankly, I think that it's liberals who too often seed ground like mm-hmm. seed legal ground that we need not seed um, to the conservative viewpoint. And I wrote the book so that, you know, people could understand the law more for sure, but also so that liberals could kind of start thinking about a different way to fight for the law and to fight for our, our, our values. Um, without a doubt. So let's talk about a few specifics here. Ellie Mistal, in the in the book, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution, you, you know, your premise is is reasonable. It it goes to follow that if you uh, the Constitution was written by a bunch of white men, that no women weighed in on this, no people of color weighed in on this. We were never asked, "Does this work for you?" So at some point, it should have been updated, right? That's like that's the that's the the bottom. That's the the easiest. That's the the the, the ground floor. But at best, any document like this should be kind of a living document by which it's updated. It, it keeps up with the times. First of all, I read this thing and I want to say, did people back then actually talk like this? Did they speak like this? The way that the Constitution is written? Because it's not plain English. Um, I'm, not, I'm not as knowledgeable about archaic forms of like, 18th century um, parts of speech. Um, (laughs) I'm not a linguist. Um, I assume that there were parts of the, you know, when I read the Federalist Papers, right, Mm -hmm. those were definitely made to be popularly understood. And they're just as convoluted as the, as some of the constitutional language. It's just, it's just like that. Um, I point out, for instance, the eighth amendment, our eighth amendment, that's not, they didn't come up with that. They just copy and pasted that from the English Bill of Rights um, from the 17th century. Uh Um, Look, people, one of the pushbacks that I've gotten is that people have said, um, well, it has been updated, right? Um, And I say, yeah, those, the amendments are great. Who got to write those? (laughs) (laughs) Touche. Now, the other part of it, if it was so great before it ever got out of the box, before the, the horses left the gate, they had to add 10 things. The first 10 amendments, the Bill of Rights, were basically ad- addendums to the Constitution before it ever became effective. Right, so I called it a day one patch in the book, right? Like, so like the, right. So the, the, they knew the, con- the Constitution was so broken on release, they had to immediately update it. Right. That's number one. Then we had to fight a civil war. Um, that's how ridiculous that form of government was. I count that as a demerit. Then after the Civil War, you make all these changes. And everybody's like, oh, it's changed. Oh, those work so well that they ignored um, and, and still had an apartheid state going on in the South for another hundred years after the war until there was another uprising, another this time peaceful uprising. That was in the 60s. Right. So that's another demerit to even make the uh, Civil War amendments have any kind of you know, gumption, whatever. And then that the, the civil, the, the civil rights movement works so well that within 40 years, 40, 45 years, you go from an oppressed people to having the first black president, which is awesome. And, and the, the America reacted to that so strongly that they replaced the first black president with a bigoted con man. 
Um, and when that bigoted con man was thrown out of office, his people launched a coup. Yeah. Which, again, I count as a demerit when we're talking about, like, constitutional government, right? Right. So, like, they're, 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 e- even when you when we talk about the amendments and the changes and, and the addendums, what we still fundamentally have is a country written by mu- white men for white men, interpreted only by white men. And that's the last point that, I'll, that, that I make on this amendments uh, um, uh, uh, issue. We've had the, the final arbiter of what the Constitution says when there is ambiguity is the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. We, we, <laughs> we can disagree about how we've gotten there, but it is where we are. Right? right. The Supreme Court decides what the Constitution actually means. There have been 115 Supreme Court justices in American history. 108 of them have been white men. So yeah. even when we're talking about the amendments, even when we're talking about the living, breathing, um, evolving document, we're still fundamentally talking about laws written by white men for white men, interpreted by white men and for white men, where everybody else basically hasn't been allowed to play. Right. And that, I think, is a problem. Right. And for those who say, well, look, the, the, the problems have been corrected. There are the amendments. Well, uh, um, uh, uh, I'm a woman. Tomorrow is International Women's Day. Guess what we still don't have in this lovely document here? Equal rights amendment. Thank you. All men are created equal. Well, that's bull. But all women are not. Um, so it's bullshit on a few levels. So Ellie Mastal, what is your solution? Do we need a rewrite? Because there's been talk of a constitutional convention. Problem is the people making the loudest noises are the idiots on the right who I don't know what they want to do. The Constitution seems to be perfectly written for them maybe not for us i would think if anyone wants to rewrite it it should be us so what 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 is their problem yeah i would be for a rewrite if i thought that we could get a constitutional convention that where all the people were represented proportionally and equally right Mm -hmm. unfortunately we wouldn't do that Mm -hmm. we would either do it based on some like ridiculous cockamamie state system that would just lock in the unfair disproportionate power white people have in the senate we just lock that in to another constitutional convention which would be bad or we'd let, you know, you know, it's like, how are we going to choose these delegates? We'd let corporations choose the delegates and be very like, however, we got if we could get to an actual representative body of Americans choosing uh, writing the new Constitution, I would be all for it. I just have absolutely no confidence that we could get there. And instead, we'd have a delegation that would lock in much of the unfairness that we currently see in the current Constitution. So my solution mm-hmm. is always is is in fact to use the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is the thing that has the, the is the final say on what the Constitution means. Then I think we need to flood the the Supreme Court with people who think the Constitution means something better than it is. Okay, and uh, and, and that's where I always come back to. That's a whole different you know getting dem- again getting Democrats on board with that that idea is at this point even harder than getting Republicans on board with that idea. Republicans understand that if they want things, they have to control the Supreme Court. I'm still trying to get Democrats to get that memo. Right. Right. And the the thing is, I think the Democrats are so and I I hate overgeneralization, but here I go. The thing that White House is is knows what the deal is. Right. Right. Not everybody. Got to. 
They've got to. But an overwhelming number of Democrats in Congress are so concerned with, you know, playing the bipartisan game that and and not uh, not appearing to be overstepping whatever artificial boundaries they think there are that that they that they're frozen with inaction. Now, the people on the other side, you know, you're Mitch McConnell, bitch. Well, I don't see that they're really taking us into account. Well, when did the last guy ever take the Democrats into account? Why is it only the Democrats who have to worry about the feelings of the poor snowflake Republicans? It's such an asymmetrical war. When Republicans are in power, they use that power maximally. They don't care what other people think. They don't care what Democrats think. They don't care what the poll numbers think. Right. I mean, people forget um, uh, the the unprecedented obstruction of Merrick Garland pulled poorly. Mm -hmm. Republicans didn't care. Um, Putting an alleged attempted rapist on the Supreme Court poured poorly. Brett Kavanaugh, uh, the least supported Supreme Court justice since they started tracking that number. Republicans didn't care. Forcing a Supreme Court justice onto the court after the election had already started with Amy Coney Barrett poured poorly. They did it anyway. Republicans don't even care about the polls, much less consulting with the other party when it comes to their their court machinations um democrats always do or at least there are enough democrats that always pretend to or suggest that they want to um and it's one of the reasons why democrats are not as effective as republicans we're, we're democrats are not as effective because they're always trying to appease republicans republicans are more effective because they don't give a damn about appeasing democrats right right broke something in my house oh that's okay <laughs> I'm used to having dogs run through and barking and uh, we're, we're cool here. Doesn't that doesn't matter. I just hope everything's OK there. So Ellie Mistal, you know, the, the subtitle to the book is A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. Now, I've got plenty of bones to pick with it, but you are coming at it from obviously a different place than I am. We have different problems with this document. That is. But but the fact remains, this document is so far from perfect. Um, and depending on who you talk to, you know, you have the originalists who what who say that that the word of these founders who were flawed men, flawed white men is unfallible that we have to that for the next however many centuries this country might exist and i know i'm being overly optimistic here um, (laughs) by saying centuries it could just be a matter of weeks the way we're going um that that we have to go based on the feelings of these white men from 250 years ago yeah so first of all it's a black guy's guide to the constitution it's not a guide to the constitution for black people right like gotcha. the, the 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 thing that i'm trying to do with that as it as it suggests in the title i'm looking at the constitution from the perspective of a person the constitution was designed to ignore mm-hmm. and so that gives you a little bit different perspective right like the thing wasn't written for me no. and so i look at it a little bit with a little bit more skepticism shall we say um, about its true intent. But to your 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 point, the, the issue with originalists is is this, right? The when there is ambiguity, we can debate what's ambiguous or not. That's a whole different kind of field of study, right? But when there is ambiguity, conservatives say we should go back to the original public meaning of the people who wrote the thing that is now ambiguous. So if you're talking about some, just like we were talking about before, if you're talking about some 1787 language that doesn't really, that isn't clear what they mean by that, we should go back to 1787 1787 and look at what people at the time thought. And I say, screw that. (laughs) 
because the people at the time were horrible racists, rapists, slavers, colonists, and good white people who were still willing to make deals with horrible rapists, racists, slavers, and colonists, right? So, like, why why would I care about how they interpreted the words of their awful time? I don't want their awful time to come back. I think it was a bad time, you know, for people, for, for, for many people, including everybody who looked like me, right? Right. Um, so then the so, and, and the originalists will take that through even through the amendments. Right. So even when we get to like something like the 14th Amendment, instead of saying, OK, now we have to look at the original public meaning of 18th century white men. We look at the 14th Amendment and originalists will say, originalists will say OK, now let's look at it from the perspective of 19th century white men. It's still white men. Exactly. It's, it's, right. It's still white, right. It's still white men who got to write it, interpret it. Right. It's still white, white male legislatures that got to ratify it. People need to remember um, an amendment to, a cost, to the Constitution has to be ratified by three fourths of the state legislatures. Do you know how many state legislatures in American history were minority or majority minority controlled? None. Zero. <laughs> you know how many state legislators in American history were controlled by women? None. One. Oh, what? Really? Nevada. Nevada. 2018. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, gotcha. All right. <laughs> that's that's it. Yes. Gotcha. So, so even the the states that are ratifying the amendments are dominated by white males. Um, again, so I think looking at the original public meaning of the best available white people at the time is an intellectually bankrupt activity. And instead, we should look to the best available people of our time, Mm -hmm. all people of our time, to interpret what these things mean or could mean or should mean, right? Right. When we talk about something, I I, I have a whole chapter in the book, I think that the the biggest, the most obvious kind of break point between originalism and progressivism is the Eighth Amendment, right? The Eighth Amendment says cruel and unusual punishment should be prohibited. The Constitution doesn't define what cruel and unusual mean. Originalists say, well, let's go to the videotape. Let's let's go ask what James Madison and his ilk thought about cruel and unusual. And I say, you want me to ask the slavers? <laughs> right. What they thought was cruel? Right. Because they were they would walk around with their whips. And I guess they thought that was OK in right? some these, demented fashion. These people used to stick firecrackers yeah. up the backsides oh, of black people. I'm supposed to ask them. What they think okay punishments are. Nah, 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 nah. Right. <laughs> nah. right. I will ask a comic book. I will ask Cal L. I will ask, I will ask, I will ask lots and lots of documents before I go all the way back to Thomas freaking Jefferson and figure out what he thought was cruel and unusual because because he he he's lost his um he he's lost his credibility on that particular issue, if you ask me. Yeah, I, I'd say so. I would say so. You know, and even something is, look, we all know the words of the Second Amendment. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Well, they could have written that to make it a little more English friendly. But, you know, even to my non-legal ears, a well-regulated militia, to me, this sounds like it's the National Guard shall have the right to be armed to do the duties of the National Guard. That's the well-regulated militia. Kyle Rittenhouse going into uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin with an AR-15, there's nothing regulated about that. It's not a militia in the terms of being regulated. He shouldn't have got off. He killed a man. So, you know, 
this is open to interpretation. And I might say, if we're not going to rewrite it, maybe we need to better interpret it. But then it falls, as you say, Ellie, to the Supreme Court. And now we've got a real Supreme Court problem. So it was two seats for sure. And I'll even throw in a third, I think, was stolen. And what they were willing to do for their people, for Amy Coney Barrett, push her through in what, days before the election? And now some of them are raising a red flag about anybody that Joe Biden might nominate? That's some grade A bullshit. That's the hypocrisy you're talking about. And so the solution is to do what is not actually mentioned in the Constitution at all, because it doesn't say how many justices are on the Supreme Court. It's to fill it with people so it could be more balanced and a bit more fair. Is that, that's Article, the goal, right? Article three of the Constitution says that the Supreme Court, there shall be a Supreme Court of the United States and it shall be organized by Congress and federal judges shall, shall serve while in good behavior. Huh. That's it, folks. It says that there's lifetime tenure. It says that Congress controls everything else about what the Supreme, how the Supreme Court is organized. Um, and that means that we can have as many justices as Congress wants. Mm-hmm. We started with six. We went to seven. Then we went to eight. Then we went to nine. Then we went to 10. Then we went back down to seven. Then we went to nine again. And that's where we've been. And then, but but you forget, Ellie, we went to eight. This, the, the Republican Party under <laughs> Mitch McConnell put it back to eight for the better part of a year on his There's own a, yeah. whim because he didn't want to put Obama's nominee yeah, we, on the court. So we they went to eight as long as black people were president. That's right. right. Um, so, so yeah, so the number of justices can be changed and I think they should be changed. And I think that changing the number of justices is historically what one does when the Supreme court gets completely out of whack of where the rest of the country is. The normal pushback that I get from that is liberals saying, well, if we expand the Supreme court, well then Republicans, when they get in control, they'll just expand the Supreme Court right back. To which I say, how is that worse? <laughs> right. Exactly. How is that go, worse go than for we it. are now? The right? more, we're, the better. Right now we're losing six to three. If we make it 13 to six and then later Republicans come back and make it 16, 13, how is that worse than where we are now? It's not. But in the meantime, having a 13 to six court, having, you know, a 20 to six court or whatever, however you want to, many people you want to put on it. I, I advocate for 29 justices. Do you? Makes it a lot harder for Republicans to ever take back control of all of government again, which they would need to do in order to re-expand the Supreme Court because a liberal Supreme Court would would protect a little thing that I like to call voting rights. <laughs> a little thing that, right? that nobody seems to be very concerned about right now. And it turns out that when everybody votes, when everybody who wants to vote can vote and have their vote counted, it turns out when everybody has a frictionless access to voting, it's very, very hard for Republicans to win because they are an unpopular minority party. They are. And so if you expand the Supreme Court so that it protects voting rights, then it's very hard for Republicans to ever take back control of that body again. Case in point. What was the Republican legal response to Barack Obama beyond the birth certificate stuff and the Kenya stuff and whatever? What was the legal response to Barack Obama? It's 2013. It's John Roberts eviscerating the Voting Rights Act. Yeah. And don't let him do anything. The Voting Rights Act in 2013 that then sets the conditions for Trump to get a narrow victory in 2016. That is John Roberts understanding that the way to keep Republicans in control fundamentally is to suppress votes. 
and to suppress laws that allow people to vote. So that's the Republican response. Yep. If you have a Democratic controlled Supreme Court, then they expand voting rights. They knock down racist gerrymanders. And then we see if Republicans can win on a fair playing field. So far, they haven't. Right. You know, Ellie Mastal, I need to back up to something you said. You said Congress, uh, according to the Constitution, has control over the Supreme Court. Uh, as long as the justices are in good behavior or something like that. What what word did you use? What phrase? Good behavior. Good behavior. OK, well, can we talk about Clarence Thomas for a moment, please? Because I don't think he operates on good behavior. I think, first of all, he fudged his financial disclosure forms and never declared the money that his wife was bringing in as a partisan Republican political activist. I mean, this woman raised money for the buses to go to D.C. on January 6th. She is pulling political strings and he doesn't recuse himself from anything she's involved with. I would say that Clarence Thomas does not operate under good behavior. And if the tables were turned, I don't think he'd still be on the court. So ideologically, the judge that I oppose the most is Samuel Alito. Okay. He's a a jerk. (laughs) Yes, he is. He's a a mean person. Yes, he is. Um, He's a theocrat. He believes in uh, a grand state power for Republicans and none for Democrats. Like he's he's a hypocrite. Yeah. Um, And there's nothing that I say about Alito that impugns his character. Okay. Samuel Alito has the character to be a Supreme Court justice. I just think he happens to be wrong (laughs) about almost everything. Gotcha. I'm with Clarence Thomas is ethically compromised. Brett Kavanaugh is is morally compromised. These two people are different than Alito and Gorsuch, who I could spend the rest of my life disagreeing with on policy. Oh, yeah. Thomas and Kavanaugh have different kinds of problems. And those problems, unfortunately, can only be handled through the congressional um, uh, process of impeachment, because the the, the the Congress has written no other laws, which they could, to put ethical strictures on the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is the only court in America that operates without an ethics code. Mm-hmm. Every other court that you can think of, the, you can go to a traffic court in Peoria, and there's an ethics code for that traffic judge, not for Kavanaugh, really? not for Clarence Thomas, really? not for his wife, Jenny Thomas, which is the only reason they can get away with that. Because if the traffic court judge in Peoria, Illinois, was if, if his wife was out there fundraising for people who showed up at traffic court, that would be an ethical violation and the judge would have to recuse himself. But on the Supreme Court. That same problem, Jenny Thomas fundraising for people, pinning literal medals on people who are about to show up in her husband's courtroom because the Supreme Court has no ethical guidelines. Nothing bad can happen to Clarence Thomas unless Congress decides to impeach him, which we know they don't have the strength or will to do. They don't have the backbone to do. Right. You know, because if they did, because he's been doing this for 30 years. Right. And they haven't hasn't bothered them yet. Um, That's astounding that there's no ethics rules for the Supreme Court. How do we change that? Congress. Uh, Congress. But we need a Congress. But here's the thing, Nicole. And this is this is a good good way to kind of close it out. One of the reasons why there's an ethical there's an asymmetry between Republicans and Democrats on the Supreme Court is that Republican voters vote on the Supreme Court. And too often, Democratic voters don't vote on the Supreme yep. Court, right? Yep. Yep. So you cannot win a Republican primary for Senate 
or president without being super strong on the Supreme Court. I take you back to 2016. Donald Trump, outsider. He's anti-establishment. He's making fun of the Bush family. He's calling Mexicans criminals and rapists. Mm-hmm. He's doing all these outside the box crazy things. But when it comes to the court, nah. He went and got himself a list from the Federal Society that was straight Republican establishment center mass. No craziness there. Wasn't trying to nominate his sister, Mary Barry Trump, Mary Trump Barry, or his daughter, Ivanka. Wasn't trying to do any of that. Just these very standard Republican justices, because if he had it, that would have cost him the nomination. Right. Republicans don't play around when it comes to that. Fast forward to 2020. Um, Democrat, you know, every Democrat and their mother is running for president, right? We got Bernie, we got the coffin man, we got we got all these people, right? We got mm-hmm. Mayor Stop and Frisk, all these yep. people running, yep. right? Joe Biden is one of the most conservative mm-hmm. persons when it comes to the Supreme Court. A former head of the Senate Judiciary Committee yep. is the most opposed to court packing, um, is the most conservative when it comes to uh, uh, thinking about reforming the court. It costs him zero votes. It cost Biden nothing Amazing. to have that concern. Pete Buttigieg had a whole plan to expand the Supreme Court. Didn't pick him up vote. Joe Biden had no plan. Cost him nothing. That's how Democrats roll. Yeah. And Barack it- Obama comes up, you know, first black president, 2008. His chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, Ugh. while they're trying to pass Obamacare, literally says to a reporter, I don't give a f- about judges. That's a Rahm Emanuel. I'm sorry for the language. Oh, that's but that fine. Is, I'm quoting Rahm, Rahm Emanuel. You can't get away from that language. That's his quote in 2008. Wow. Wow. So like this, this is the problem with Democrats. We don't, you know, we, 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 we don't hold our politicians to account on the third branch of government the way Republicans do. And so then obviously our politicians don't care about the third branch of government as much as Republicans do. Why would they? It never cost them an election. Amazing. It's amazing. I still have a button from the 2012 election and it was from the people for the American way. And it was a, it was a, like a stick drawing of the Supreme court. And it just said, it's the Supreme court, stupid Obama 2012. I've kept it for all these years because I knew it's the Supreme court, stupid. Um, but, but we can't get that message out. And now we have this. And now I live in Florida where they just, I think the idiot death sentence signed into law, a bill outlawing abortions at 15 weeks. My and today, entire thing in 2016 was telling liberals who had been Bernie people after Hillary won the nomination. Mm-hmm. My entire thing for that entire last bit of the campaign was Ruth Bader Ginsburg is 82 years old. Yes. That's right. all you need to know. Hey, I'm a... I'm still a Bernie person. I voted for Hillary Clinton and I voted for Joe Biden, even though they were not my first, second, right. third, or fifth choices. Joe um, Biden was eighth on my. Well, there ballot. you go. But you know what? It's, like, you, you don't play around with the third no, branch of government because these exactly. people are appointed for life. Exactly. And that's, I don't know what it's going to take to get people to understand the writing on the wall. So here we are. Um, do you have any? I, I, I hate to end on a negative note maybe it won't be any any optimism that we're not going to go down this really dark horrible road in the next few years no i think i think one of the only ways that things i'm afraid that the only way things are going to get better from now is that they're going to have to get a lot worse you know republicans are about to get everything they wanted they're about to kill abortion rights they're about to unleash guns on subways. That's coming this term. They're about to end affirmative action. Um, they're about to kill environmental regula- regulations. Republicans are about to get everything they wanted. And my only hope 
is that as we live in the dystopia that Republicans want, more people are like, wow, it sucks here. Maybe we should do something about it. Yeah. Um, I'll probably be gone by then. How about this? How about we get rid of Democratic leadership in the House? You know, the average age right now is I, I'm in the 80s somewhere. Maybe we tell Nancy Pelosi, Stanley Hoyer, Jim Clyburn, you've, you've done a lovely lifetime of service. Now you go home and let the next generation take over. It's their asses on the line for the next 40, 50 years. You won't be here. How about turning it over to them and let them try to make things better? If I was rewriting the Constitution, yeah. <laughs> I would have term limits in there. I'm just saying I'm just, <laughs> term limits for federal officials. That I would be a constitutional you. thing if I was writing it. I'm just saying. OK, so you don't disagree with me. Like time for them to go <laughs> I'm home. Just, I'm just, oh, I, I look, I think in general, Nancy Pelosi does a great job. I do think that, you know, there are issues there. Are, there are places where I disagree with her politics, but I can't uh, I can never uh, uh, disagree with her competence. And I think that, you know, I I always want to give her credit for that. But like, look, this is why we fight. This is why we have elections. The the point of of constitutional law is to is to uh, establish the guardrails. And I feel like our Constitution is really weak when it comes to establishing guardrails. There would be no problem with having how many terms are enough. Pick a number. But whatever that number is, write it down and say, like, after three, four, five, six terms, we're gonna we're gonna rotate you know we're gonna stir the pot a bit like i don't i Hello. don't see why that would be a problem i don't see why either and i you know i i, I wish i wish the people would listen to us i often say look democrats are great because we don't take the talking points. We don't uh, we don't take what other people tell us to say and make that our statement. We have minds of our own. We need to get in lockstep on certain things and saving the nation maybe is one of them and, and making the Constitution a bit more fair as well. Ellie Mastall, allow me to retort. A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution is out now. Read it. And uh, Ellie, it is always a pleasure. I love having you on. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Nicole. Have a nice one. Find Ellie Mastall at The Nation, thenation.com, and follow him on Twitter at Ellie, E-L-I-E-N-Y-C. All right, quick time out and back on the other side with a very personal story on how to deal with what's going on over in Ukraine. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. What the public hears over the public airwaves matters. Without an informed electorate, we've got, well, we got what we have right now. We do our best on the broadcast five days a week to balance that with accurate reporting on issues that actually matter. We don't always get it right, but we try like hell to do so. And we do it all independently and without the influence of corporate or political funding. But we can't do it without you. Please don't presume others will step up. We need you to help us keep doing what Desi Doyen and myself try to do every day on the broadcast. Please help us continue to do so by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep the broadcast going and telling the truth over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. Don't wait. Please stop by today. Thanks. We can bond the world I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today, filling in for Brad and Desi on the broadcast. And obviously, we've all been overwhelmed these last few weeks, seeing the devastation in Ukraine from Russia's bombs dropping all over that beautiful country and seeing the senseless loss of life. It's hard to deal with. 
So during the weeks leading up to Putin's invasion, President Biden released a lot of intel about the massive buildup of troops along the border, indicating that an invasion was imminent. I wanted to talk with an average Ukrainian in Kyiv to find out what they were hearing from the government and get a general sense of how they're feeling. So I called a hotel. Now, this is something that I've done for years when there's uh, something going on in other parts of the world. I often call a hotel figuring that I'm more likely to get somebody who speaks English. For example, I called a hotel right off of Tahrir Square during the start of the Arab Spring. So I called the Intercontinental Hotel in Kiev on February 18th as an attack, we were told, was imminent. The clerk who answered the phone was certain that she was safe in Ukraine's capital city. If we're speaking about uh, like a capital in Kyiv or a western part of our country, it's everything okay. But if we start speaking of our eastern part, right. you know, we have war. And yes, because our borders with Russia have a lot of like army and that's all. So our east part is a little bit dangerous. It's not a little bit, it's actually dangerous. Yes. So, but, but in the capital here in the western part, is everything okay. That was February 18th. Russia attacked on the 23rd, just five days later. I've thought about that woman often in the months since we spoke, wondering how she regards that strange phone call she got from an American woman just days before Putin dropped the first bombs in this war. So when the attacks began on the 23rd, I didn't try reaching out again because I figured people were in shock and just trying to survive. But five days later, on February 28th, I decided to see if I could reach someone. So I again pulled up the map of Kiev and looked at the hotels that were there, and I noticed a hostel in the middle of the city called Friends Forever. And I checked it out online, and it got great reviews, and the sign was written in English, and I thought, all right, this is a sign. So, I called. Hello? Hi, do you speak English? Yes, I speak English. Hi, my name's Nicole. I'm calling from the United States, and I'm just calling to check in and see if you're okay. Yes, I'm in a little like five days, stay underground. It's not a fun. No, no. Is it, are, are there are there troops around where you are? Underground, minus one floor. You know, like five days all the time. It's like fighting. Wow. So yeah. you're you're hiding underground, basically. You're you're staying safe underground. Yes. What What would you like the rest of the world to know? What can we do to help you? My darling, uh, if you send me a. Uh, to this number, like in Telegram, I will, would ask because we will try to help to Ukrainian army and uh, any woman who pregnant, like all that, may try to obtain uh, money and uh, everybody help to each other. And uh, if you can help, if you if you can some reserve for help, uh, I will I will send to you what we are need. Okay, so send you send you like a text to this number. Yes, please. Uh, yes, if if it's better, if you can send me. I'm not sure what is true number because I doesn't I doesn't see your number. You know, if you can send to my, this number to Telegram message just uh, about help, I will ask you about some help. Okay, okay. What what is your what is your first name? Don't give me your full name. Just give me your first name. 
my name is uh, Tatiana Stepanenko. Tatiana. I'm like Yes, okay. I'm owner. I'm owner of hostel. You're the owner there. Oh my goodness. Well, yeah. I do a, I do a radio show. Um I want to get the word out as to how you're doing and what people can do to help. So, I will send you a text and um Thank you, my darling. Thank you very much for for your caring about 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 people. Thank you very much. Here in America, you are in our thoughts and we want to help. We really want to help. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. All right, Tatiana. Take care. Big hug. Thank you. Be be safe. Bye-bye. Tatiana, who friends call Tanya, has become my friend. We've been staying in touch using the Telegram app ever since, exchanging thoughts throughout the day. So I want to share with you some of what she's communicated to me over the past few weeks and how she and her husband have endured the attacks waged on them by Putin. So on March 1st, The next day after we spoke, I asked her what we could do to help them. Her answer was, my friends and I are now raising money for walkie-talkies and helmets. We have already ordered body armor, but it was all to come in a few days and the soldiers need it now. They have closed foreign transfers, so you can only help with humanitarian aid. Pray for us. Belarus attacked us an hour ago. And then her messages stopped for a few hours. And when they resumed, she sent a video along with the message We were all this time in the shelter without communication. We do not stop sound siren. And in the photo, it is our television tower. Remember that? The TV tower had been bombed and was burning. So we exchanged more messages and learned a little bit about each other. I wanted her to know that we were here, that the whole world was watching what was happening and desperately wanted to make it stop. Then she told me a bit about herself. She wrote, I understand that we are not familiar with you personally. The fact is that we have a very good hostel in the center of Kiev. We successfully accepted thousands of foreign guests for three years. For these six days, they called me and wrote hundreds of people who were visiting us. I read every single message with tears in front of our eyes, and I thank people for such good attitude. Thank you so much that you are interested in our events from the first sources. I explained that we are, that I do want to know. A couple hours later, at 3.38 p.m. Eastern Time, she wrote, We have an air alarm. We run to the basement. And that was the last I heard from her on March 1st. The next morning, I awoke early and wrote to her. It was 6.10 a.m. Eastern. And I wrote, I've just woken to horrible pictures from Kiev. They bombed hospitals, schools, and apartments. Of course, I'm thinking about you and hoping you're safe. And about 10 minutes later, she responded. She said, thank you, my dear. We're fine. Just wrote you a message yesterday and rockets flew over us. And then again, I didn't hear from her. That was 6.19 a.m. The next message I got from her was at 3.13 in the afternoon. And she said, we are underground, minus one floor. Uh, She said, I went out to write. I have to stand on the stairs, but now I need to descend. And I said, okay, again, we're thinking of you. My heart hurts. Know that the world is with you. She did finally say, we left. We're 30 kilometers from Kiev. We are hiding. And I said, good. I hope you're somewhere safe, sending love and safe thoughts. I woke up the next morning at 7.10 a.m., wrote to her, good morning from Florida, thinking about you, hoping you're okay. I didn't hear back from her until 8.45 p.m. that night. That's Eastern time. So that's 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning over there when she wrote, shot atomic electro station at the city of Zaporizhia, which I'm pronouncing wrong, and I apologize for that. But that's when the Russians hit the nuclear power plant 
in Ukraine, the largest in all of Europe. She sent a bunch of frightened emoji faces. And then she said, in the morning, when the curfew ends, we want to run to Western Ukraine. The husband will not be released abroad. See, what she's talking about there is they're not letting men leave between the ages of 18 and 60. So she wrote to me, we will go to the village. Big cities are suffering. And then I asked her, is there any way you can get to Poland or Hungary? And she said, I can do it without problems, but I will never leave my husband. This was when the the power plant was on fire. And she said, the president has just spoken and said that they want to mine nuclear reactors. There are six power units at Zaporizhia, 15 power units in all of Ukraine. Only one exploded in Chernobyl, she wrote. And then she said, we are obliged to stay home until eight in the morning. You can't go out. I asked her what it was like where she was staying. She said, we're in a small room, two meters by three meters, four people and three cats now live in it. This is the first floor of the house of prayer. So they were hiding out in a church, obviously. And I just wrote, thank you for staying in touch. I can't imagine I'm so worried about you. The next time I heard from her was the next day. It was March 4th. It was 2.56 p.m. And she wrote, good evening. We couldn't stand it psychologically. We decided to leave. We stood in line at the gas station for a very long time, for at least two hours. Then we drove towards western Ukraine, 560 kilometers. We are already driving for 12 hours, and we will go for another five hours. There are traffic jams everywhere, a lot of control, and everywhere check documents. But it's not so scary. We are now going to the village to friends. In a week, we will decide what to do. My husband wants to send me abroad. I am against. And she said, we'll be 200 kilometers from Lviv. I keep expressing how much I'm worried about her. And she said, thank you very much. I don't know you very well, but I want to hug you. And I wrote back, that's how I feel. You're my person over there. I feel really connected to you. And I plan to meet you in person when all of this is over. You have an open invitation to visit us anytime. And she responded, I don't really want to remember this week. A special shock is that there were no products in stores, no meat, no bread, at all, milk. Today, I went to a small store in the village along the road, and everything is there. I just stood there and looked at all the full shelves of products, and I cried. And then she said, after all this, I will definitely come to visit America. We began to look at life too differently. I asked her if she knows what's going on in Kiev with her hostel, and she said, yes, our hostel was not damaged. We have people living there now, not many, three people, for free. They came to say goodbye. They wanted to go home on their feet because the train's take away only women and children. And I offered for them to stay in the hostel and look after our kind home. She continued, we help as much as we can. We have a shop with purified mineral water. We develop water for free all these days. We organize the delivery of a thousand liters of water to the children's hospital where shells also hit. I want to be useful. That's amazing. And I said, what I can do from here is share information. I do feel quite helpless, powerless to help. And it hurts to watch what's happening. We're all in shock. And she responded, we are now passing near the city and there is 4G and a good mobile connection. Then I'm not sure because we are moving closer to the mountains. And then that's the last time I heard from her on March 4th. The next time I heard from her was the following day, March 5th, close to noon Eastern time. And she wrote, hi, yes, we arrived at the place. All is well. We are fine. I have good news. Russian soldiers left the energy station. This is the Zaporizhia nuclear power station. And about an hour later, she wrote, just reported that they come again. On March 6th, she wrote, "Uh, hello, I sleep very much, and I understand that I was not inadequate and shock all this time. I am very poorly mentally, 
And what was the last 10 days with me was the autopilot. She said, we've been here for two days and I have never gone outside. No energy and desire. Then, of course, I responded, now it's I who wishes I could give you a hug. I'm sure you're in shock. I'm glad you're able to get some sleep. Your body and mind surely need it. So she continued, yes, we are close to the border and we have a place to live. The owner of the house will return only after two weeks. She said, there are two rooms. We are five people. Tomorrow, two more people will arrive, but they don't shoot here. On March 7th, her friend with her three-year-old son, who happens to be Tanya's godchild, met them there. She sent a video of the little boy and she wrote, this child was in Kiev for five days, hiding under a 20-story building. And then the parents found gasoline to leave. It's very bad with gasoline in Kiev. They pour only 20 liters. Very large traffic jams. Sometimes people can't leave the city for six to seven hours. Then the gasoline runs out and people go on foot. But with a small child, it's grief. It's zero degrees outside. It's snowing. She said, but we are together now. We have a lot of food. There is no shortage in this region. And then she said, it still hurts, but it's already easier to breathe. It doesn't compress the heart so much. Well, that about shattered me. So we stayed in contact. We communicated throughout the day, numerous times over Telegram. At one point, I expressed my sorrow for not being able to do more. Her response was, you're doing a great job. Honest information and its dissemination is the best thing to do now. We thank you on behalf of the whole country. I try to be there as a sounding board so she could just express how she's feeling. And here's a typical exchange that we had over the course of the last three weeks. I asked, how are you holding up? And she said, my good friend, we are fine. Sometimes I just can't pick up the phone anymore. I lack morale. I watch the news for hours. I understand that there is an offensive 15 kilometers from Kiev, from Belarus. It hurts so much. A lot of people, my people, can't leave the city. These are my hostel administrators, my cleaning assistant, my guests who stayed in the hostel because they don't have personal transport. They are hostages. I cry. Russian vile soldiers create horror, kill civilians, old people who could not or did not want to leave the house. They kill for food. It's monstrous. Every time I talk to them, my people, they thank me for everything and say, I hope we meet again. It happens every time. I am torn apart by these words. A few minutes later, she wrote, I feel helpless. I'm safe now for this time, but my life has stopped. I'm interested in the lives of people who did not have time to escape. And every new day is a test. My aunt near Kirsten was without gas for 13 days, which means a cold house and on the street, 10 degrees below zero. There's no way to cook food. She grows vegetables. So she has a greenhouse in the city. They drowned her and slept on the ground. When the rockets flew, they fled to the basement. They now have only Russian television, but she does not watch it. She says she will wait for us and we will open an old bottle of wine and celebrate the victory. And I put down the phone and burst into tears. And my response was, I'm crying too. There's no reason for this to be happening. I'm so sorry. I scream about it on my show every day, but the government is not listening to me. And she said, oh my dear, strong women, we can only scream for help. The main thing is that more people would be safe. And she said, our task is to speak. The world will hear. Thank you for your participation. You do not understand how much you are doing for us. God is with us. Due to time constraints, I can't relay every bit of our conversation that took place over the subsequent days, but they left that remote village. They moved to the city where the air raids came faster and more regularly, and it was just too much. Her husband and her friend's husband finally insisted that the women take the little boy and go to Poland. 
So we'll pick up when she told me they were leaving, getting in the car, heading to the border. She writes, we're on the road. I'm driving. I'll drive up to the border and write to you. That was 1.40 a.m. Eastern time. At 6.49 a.m., she writes, come to the border. It was 4.30. I was getting ready to go on the air. I still hadn't heard back from her. So the last I knew on Thursday was that they had arrived at the border with Poland. And then I heard nothing else. Finally, at 7 o'clock Thursday night, I got this message. She wrote, Good night, my dear. We are already with friends in Krakow. Three of my godchildren were waiting for me here. Children make me happier. Thank you for your concern. I'm shocked by what people from Poland are doing. They provide free car insurance for 30 days, distribute SIM cards with internet and free calls to Ukraine, distribute children's food, clothes, toys. I cry nonstop. And she sent me a lot of photos from the border after they crossed. And I'm like, thank you so much for letting me know. I'll rest much easier tonight. I'm so glad to hear that the people in Poland are so welcoming. And of course, I too was crying at that point, tears of joy. And then she sent a bunch of photos of the kids playing in this apartment where she's now staying. And that brings us to today. I'm recording this on Friday. And I wrote to her, I woke this morning feeling much better knowing that you are safe. These videos are wonderful. I hope you're able to relax a little now. Sadly, I note that they bombed Lviv yesterday, and she responded. She said, today a siren was tested near the city of Krakow. She said, I know about Lviv. My words are coming to an end. My sister asked me to fly to her in Dubai. We are starting to think about it seriously. And then she said, let's devote this time that we are here to children. We have six of them here. Now let's go outside for a walk, and it's great to know that there is no siren and no danger here. And then she wrote, Poland is beautiful. I want to hug every passerby. And that's where we are. My friend, Tanya, is safe in Poland while her husband remains in Ukraine because he's not allowed to leave. I just want peace. Peace for all of them. The madness has got to stop. And now, as I'm wrapping up the production of this show, I get a message from Tanya. And it says, My dear sister bought tickets for us three. We are flying on March 20th to Dubai. I guess we have to love a, well, a happy intermission because this is far from the end, unfortunately. And with that, we come to the end of another edition of the Bradcast. I'm Nicole Sandler. Thank you for hanging with me today. Until next time, I'll leave you with Brad's words of wisdom. Good luck, world. Boy, do we need it.